Okay, good. Okay, everyone, uh, welcome back, or welcome for the first time, for those of you who are here for the first time. Um, I'm going to start immediately with the collect that I read last week, because I still think it's important to begin Bible study with a prayer, at least here. I never did it in class at the college, but here I will. I did my own prayer, but not with that. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, kindle we pray in every... Sorry, I'm reading the wrong one. That was a prayer for peace. I could have probably gone on with that one, but that's not the one I was supposed to use. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Now, last week we spent most of our time talking about the lives of the early Christian community that would have been associated with the city of Corinth in the first century of the Common Era. And we tried to get some sense of the everydayness of their lives. And we tried to get some sense of what it would mean to read 1 Corinthians in a Bible with some appreciation for the people who heard it the first time. Is there a chair back over there, Dee? Chair? Okay, good but so that we might get some sense of what it would have been like to have heard the letter read to us for the first time. Not in a collection, but on a piece of papyrus or maybe a, a bit of skin that was actually written down, handwritten by somebody, and delivered to the people at Corinth and said, here, read this. It's from Paul. All right? Now, we did it a little bit, and we, I think, came to the conclusion by the end of it that those were people like us, but it was also fairly different from us, all right? Just to get some sense of day-to-day -day life. We're not going to go over all that again, but I want to start today by reading the last chapter of 1 Corinthians before we get into what we're going to discuss. This again to give you a sense of the familiarity that existed between Paul and the Corinthians. Beth just told me and Kitty confirmed it that after reading these first four chapters they're saying who in the world did this guy think he was and he could write this one. Okay. A lot of people feel that. One of the first times I ever had a conversation with Sylvia Robinson was over dinner at the Swift House, and she told me how much she did not like Paul <laughs> because of some of what he wrote, particularly about women. Do you remember that conversation? Okay, so 
he has always attracted negative press, and the number of people have not liked it. It's been so from the beginning. We saw it last week. In our looking at a couple of the passages here, simply about it, and we'll pick up on some more. But to get started, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 16. I don't want you to look it up. I want you to simply listen to it. Oh, um, I can't do anything about that. I'll try to speak. Can you hear me? Yeah. No, okay. So I'm going to read this, and I want you to listen to it as if you were hearing it for the first time. And for quite a few of you, it will probably be the first time that you will have ever heard this. Because not often is it read in church. Okay. Now concerning the collection for the saints... You should follow the directions I gave to the churches of Galatia. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save whatever extra you earn so that collections need not be taken when I come. And when I arrive, I will send any whom you approve with letters to take your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable, that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I do not want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. If Timothy comes to you, see that he is nothing to fear among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord just as I am. Therefore, let no one despise him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may come back to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers but he was not at all willing to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Keep alert. Stand firm in your faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, brothers and sisters, you know that members of the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you to put yourselves at the service of such people and of everyone who works and toils with them. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence 
for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. So give recognition to such persons. The churches of Asia send greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, greet you warmly in the Lord. All the brothers and sisters send their greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Let anyone be accursed who has no love for the Lord. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. How many have you heard that for the first time? No. For the first time. Okay. What was your response, Holly, on hearing this? not take offense. You didn't take offense? Okay. <laughs> Is that the best you can say? <laughs> well, given the preface. <laughs> um, yes. I thought it was very matter of fact, and I expected him to um, continue to um, give directions as to how he was going to be put up. Uh, and how he was going to be fed and uh, otherwise taken care of before he set out on his journey. So I, it sounded like a housekeeping until the final salutation. Okay, good. So there's, very matter of fact, a lot of details about travel. And a lot of Paul's letters end with this sort of travel. Mike, you had something you were going to say about the person. No, I raised my hand for having heard it for the first time, All right. which I think is true. All right. So what uh, was your response on here? It seemed to be a mixture of sort of intentional directions and not idle chatter, but just sort of like you would talk to somebody over a cup of coffee, just things that weren't critical to the community. Right. Two things. Uh, first of all, just a reference to the at the end there. I Paul write this in my own hand. What I assumed was that the scribe was writing the first part and then he in his own hand write it. Probably so. The main thing I got out of it is that he's sort of the leader of this this movement. It's all over. And he has all these all these pieces that he's trying to The other thing, though, I would point out in this, he's talking about Timothy coming along, mm -hmm. and we've talked about this before, um, so that he's got co-workers, and he said, I urged Apollos to come, but he's just not ready to do it. And, and so, you know, Paul seems to have some authority, but there are people who, I've got my own mind, I'll go when I'm ready to go. Okay. Tom. It sounds almost like on Sunday morning, our announcements. <laughs> 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 or a letter from the bishop. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Thank you.
There is a sort of announcement quality to it, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. But you know, the one thing that is at odds with all of that is the integrity of the offering. He's so precise that this is not going in my heart. Yes, yeah. That's a great observation, and it will come up a lot in Second Corinthians because clearly he was getting pushback about it. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but just as a sort of foretaste of it, notice it's a collection for Jerusalem. It's a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And in Galatians, he refers to it as a collection for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. But it, was, it's, it clearly caused some controversy. And there's some sense, is Paul going to pocket it? And as we'll see in next week's reading, and you're welcome to come back, as we'll see in next week's reading, one of the things that he wants to insist on is that when he is working in a particular city, he will not accept money from the people in that city. It was a hard and set rule for Paul. If you notice, he said in here, I will stay with you a while and then I want you to send me on. Send me on is almost a technical term for you're going to pay my expenses going to the next place. When I'm with you, when I'm proclaiming the gospel to you, I will not accept any money from you. It's a principle, and again, we'll see why he's so explicit and forceful about it. But it is, I will see that it is your obligation to help me go to the next place. So it, all, it happens a lot. Well, I have, I, what I think is a comment what struck me was that this is in itself a letter. It's an entity with a beginning and an end. Did I just learn that 1 Corinthians is a series of letters and not a single letter to the Church of Corinth, which is what I had always thought. Yeah. This one, I think, is a single letter. 1 Corinthians, I think, is one letter. But when you add 2 Corinthians on top of that, I think 2 Corinthians probably has three or four bits and pieces in it. Right. This is a typical of an ending. If you look at the ending of Romans, it's almost exactly like this. A lot of greetings to people. Greet so and so, so and so and so. Pardon me? Did you read the first chapter? No, this is chapter 16. Oh, I understand that. Yeah, yeah. This is chapter 16. Only the last, only the last chapter. Yeah, Carol. How is he making a living? He was probably a craftsman. Well, he can. Because remember what he was doing. He's going to cities. And he's going to cities because that's where the money was for the crafts that he did. So he would go from place to place. He, he will say, I work with my own hands. And th this, by the way, no, I won't do it. It would be too off. Go too far. But he does work with his own hands. He probably was working out of a shop part of the time and then someone would hire a hall because if you go into most cities there were areas in the downtown area where there would be places where street preachers and teachers would set up shop and they would like like um, in London Hyde Park Corner Hyde Park Corner where people would stand and talk that's exactly what would go on a speaker's corner in Hyde Park yeah. Okay, so it would be that sort of setting that he is would probably work in the shop. To say, I'm not touching the money, right? but then how is he? Yeah. 
The money that he's taking up is for the church in Jerusalem. And that's why he is so careful. You decide who takes it. If I go, then I will go alone, or they will go with me, we'll go together. And if you don't trust me, you know, send somebody to go to deliver the money. If it, again, we'll talk about that collection later. It takes Second Corinthians 8 and 9 is, only deals with that collection. And it was probably an independent fundraising letter that got woven into Second Corinthians. All right? Is it known how long he lived in Corinth? Eighteen months on the earliest time, and then he was thinking go, about going back and spending an extended period of time. So he was in and out of Corinth at least three times over the course, if you put the, all of it together. Yep. And his living expenses would have been taken care of if he's going to spend the winter with them, right? So he, in fact, isn't getting paid by being... He's being paid by his work. The Corinthians are not paying him for his daily expenses. Well, they're putting him up. Nope. He would pay for his own stuff. Now, he's probably using money he raised somewhere else to do his work in Corinth. And now he wants Corinth to pay where he goes next. Again, we will see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. He will talk about, I have a right to be paid by you. And he will quote scripture to say, as someone who is teaching and working for you, I have a right to be paid. But I refuse to exercise the right. But that's part of a larger argument. It's an example. That's not his main point in saying that. His main point is, I'm I'm not taking what I deserve or what I have a right to. And I expect you not to demand your rights when it comes to certain relationships with other people in the church. Right? So it becomes an example. When Paul says, be an imitator of me, in that particular instance, he means don't demand your rights if it's going to hurt somebody else. That's the imitation he's after. Okay? So you always have to figure where in any particular argument a phrase comes up. Okay. Let me pause, by the way, on that one second. The, the problem with the way most of us hear the Bible is we hear it in snippets in church on Sunday morning. So we get a few verses from this book, a few verses from that book, a few verses from another book, and then we say a psalm. And that's the way we get our Bible, in little snippets. It's perfectly appropriate. We do pretty good things with it in our liturgies and when we try to preach and bring together some of that. But what you miss in doing it that way is the flow either of a story or in the case of one of Paul's letters with the overall argument. Okay? So it's just something to miss. To read something all the way through will help you see things that only hearing a little snippet will never do for you. And then if you hear it only in snippets, you think, well, that's all you do. I just read a little snippet, I'll take what I want, and then I'll go my merry way. Again, it's like dipping into an anthology of poetry. Every once in a while, it's just nice to read one little poem. But if you want to understand Emily Dickinson, yes, one poem works, but the corpus of poetry gives you a sense of how you read the one poem in light of a style that works more broadly. Um, It's just sort of the way reading works. 
And so that's why, again, we're going to take longer sections in this and try to sort through them. Okay? Mark. Hey. The other thing that I thought about when I was reading it was that I had had, maybe this has been happening before I started reading this, but what your instructions certainly help with, is to really read it as a person, I mean, I hear Paul. I mean, I'm, I'm unusual among women, I've always really loved Paul's writings, but, but I could hear his voice and his concerns. And, and the other thing, though, with when you hear bits and pieces in church, we're always talking about love, and it just, we, the word loses its meaning. But one of the things that I keep hitting with Paul is he's really loving, and he's really talking. I mean, he might get angry, but he's deeply in love with Christ, as in love as Francis was, I think, and in love with the people that he's trying to help. Anybody want to ask Meg about that? Well, you want to say, wait a minute, how do you get that? I don't get it at all. What you say, except women. Except women? Well, I, I think a lot of that stuff is not actually Paul. I think that's what they think. That's my impression. Yeah, I, I think that's right. There, there are a couple of, There's a place in, in Corinthians that we can do if you want. It's in chapter 11. It's the... Uh, the first part of chapter 11 is about the Eucharist. The second part of you know, 1 Corinthians 11 is about praying in church and orderliness in worship. And one of the issues he raises in that is not whether women can pray in church, but how, how should they should be dressed and coiffured when they do it. All right? Is that clear? Is what I just said clear to everyone? In 1 Corinthians 11, he's dealing with worship. And he has an argument that women should be dressed a certain way when they pray in church. He doesn't question whether they do. He said they should be dressed in a certain way to do it. And men should too. And men should too. Now, his argument is not a logic we would follow because he says, doesn't nature teach you? Thusis is the word. Doesn't nature teach you that women have long hair and men have short hair? <laughs> well, um, no, nature doesn't teach us that. If we think of nature the way we think of nature. But for Paul, the word phusis is going to include human culture. And in his human culture, men had short hair, women had long hair. Right? It's just the way it sort of worked. And so he said, well, everybody does it this way. It must be natural, therefore, that's the way it should be. And so that when women pray, they should keep their heads covered so that their hair is not flying loose all over the place. Because there are certain women who do that in ecstatic, orgiastic sort of worship. And he doesn't want this community to look like those Bacchic rites with the women running around that's that's then, his argument. Whether, whether it's good or not, that's what it is. Why do all the early painters Jesus with Jesus with long hair? Um, most of it, people have studied it. There's a fascinating um, treatment by Warner Solomon is one of the common painters of this. Warner Solomon 
his Jesus could come out of a brick commercial. <laughs> right? I'm serious. The, the portraits that Solomon did in the 1950s of Jesus looked straight out of a Brett commercial in Better Homes, not Better Homes and Gardens, what, what magazine? What, good Housekeeping Gardens. There's a Holiday. Holiday magazine, you know. Um, I'm going to pull this back. All right, we can talk about some of this other later, but we're already 20 minutes. <laughs> we haven't even got the text of that. Carol. No, that part is, I don't think it is. That sounds like Paul's arguing to me. There's a place in 1 Corinthians 14 which comes back to it. It may be an insertion, but here, Paul's primary purpose, both for men and women, is that you do, is you conduct worship in a way that an outsider coming in will not be scared off. That's the primary interest that he's got there. If you were if you were acting so differently, people are going to think you're weird, and many people did. When you look at the writings of the earliest non-Christians who talk about the early movement, they had some very negative things to say about them. They said they go in and talk about love. Well, they're just having orgies. They talk about drinking blood. Well, they're killing babies. This is the stuff that the outsiders said about Christians because they heard the language, and a lot of it didn't make sense. Okay, it's a little like if you're an IBM, you wear a suit. Yes, yes, yeah. There's a dress code, so that you fit in. I think that's essentially what is going on there because he said it should be done decently in order, and you should do it so that the idiotes. Anybody want to guess what idiotes is in English? Idiots. So the unknowing people, it's not a derogatory term, it just means so the people who are not on the inside will not be frightened off and they will engage you rather than walking off in, in disdain. I think that's what the, the main purpose of 11 is. Because again, this is a new movement. And as we talked about some last week, some of the people in this movement are now having family problems because they've joined this. Remember our talk about Thecla, the woman who started following Paul and then refused to carry through with her marriage to her, her fiancé, and he got upset and went and talked to her, her mother and said, can't you get Thecla to get married? I mean, you know, we're going to be taking care of you in your old age. And Thecla said, no, I'm not going to do that. So she was going off her own way. And and this this story would be a popular story because there, Elizabeth Clark, a very important scholar down at Duke and University of North Carolina, has made arguments that one of the reasons that early Christianity grew as much as it did, particularly among women, is it allowed them that option. And having a lot of babies was a dangerous thing. Having even babies in antiquity was a dangerous thing. And so there was a certain freedom that came with that, and it's so there are all sorts of elements of, of this behind the scene, right? Okay. Now let's go to one through four, chapters one through four. 
As you remember, we talked about last week in this chapter, in these four opening chapters, Paul is dealing with the report from Chloe's people. Who are Chloe's people? Chloe's people. People who, probably people who worked for Chloe, either as slaves or as freedmen, um, but they were in her workshops, whatever, and they were traveling around. Paul is in Ephesus, so here from Corinth to Ephesus, it's a long way, but there are good Roman roads that you could travel along, and like Lydia in the book of Acts, she has business, and her people go all over the place selling dye goods or selling whatever Chloe's people did, all right? So, Chloe's people come to Paul and say, Paul, there's some things going on in Corinth. This is after Paul had been in Corinth and he leaves. And then Chloe's people catch up with him in Ephesus and say to Paul, there's real dissension in the church. Some people are saying they're going to follow you. Some want to follow Apollos. Some want to follow Cephas. Some say they're following Christ. And there are divisions. Right? So, that shows up in chapter 1. The rest of 1 through 4 is going to be Paul's dealing with that particular issue that there are divisions in the Corinthian church that Paul thinks is undermining its unity and undermining its identity and undermining its understanding of the gospel. Okay? What are some of the arguments? For that. I invited you to think about this in the chief. What are some of Paul's what are some of the things that Paul says to the people in Corinth about their having divisions? They're all being separate, going their separate ways. The thing that struck me when I was reading it again was that maybe some of these So one of the things then that Apollos, who came in after Paul, was drawing some people to start a separate little group, or maybe a separate big group, but it was threatening the unity. Right? Anybody got anything else, or maybe you would well, that is evidence that suggests what was going on in Apollos' circles. What are the terms that Paul uses here? They were becoming cliques. Why? What was what was causing the clickishness? Well, that they one or other group would become was preaching the true gospel. That there was a competition as to who was closest to Christ. clearly they're saying something that Paul didn't say right that's part of it but can we put more into it Bart he also talks about the fact that he didn't baptize he didn't baptize anybody so obviously some of those others were baptizing and I guess they felt closer to that 
What did you make of Paul's response there? Just as you read through that, when you read it, what were you thinking? I was thinking, why isn't he baptizing? Why isn't he baptizing anybody? Did he baptize anybody? Yes. It's one of those things that you almost read as if he's, you know, he says something and somebody says, wait a minute, what about? Oh, yeah, well, I baptized him. Oh, when I baptized him. No, yeah, you're right. But it really didn't make any difference. So that's the way Paul is coming at this. And you can see that living voice, right? That he's working some of these arguments out as he goes. And remember, this is the early Christian community giving shape to what it is, making it up as they go. Right. So some of this is in. He's trying to figure out, too, the, the question of authority. Who, who is it who says what is true? And who is it who says what is true? Can you try to speak up a little, sir? Well, the whole book, not just Second Corinthians, feels really painful to me, just really hurting, that he cannot see why people can't understand what it is to be in Christ. And it's such a mystical term, really. And he gets it, but he can't figure out why nobody else gets it. And so he sort of thrashes around and at the same time, it's total chaos in the Corinthian church, as far as I can see. The liturgies are total chaos. Um, but you can't see why people can't um, see through that to what the Spirit is saying. And so he's trying to figure out in these chapters. To me, he's trying to figure out how to um, how how to how to um, instill a sense of authority, which isn't his, but is his. Um, so it's, it's really difficult, but I just feel for him. It's so painful the way he tries to navigate between, I'm telling you this, and no, no, this is the spirit, and you figure it out for yourself, but God is within you. And then just, oh, poor guy. <laughs> okay, now let's take that and push into the text. Now, I want you to come up with two or three words that you thought about or discovered. We're so on the cheat sheet. <laughs> that may indicate what some of the issues were and the way Paul goes about doing it. Give me a word. Give me a phrase that shows up here in 1 through 4. Again and again and again. Foolish. Wisdom. Foolish. Wisdom. Talks a lot about foolish. Foolish. Wise and foolish. Right? Immature. Now what do the terms mean? Sorry. Immature. Immature shows up. Yeah. I think he uses wisdom in Exactly. And which one is he for? Is he for the human wisdom or the divine wisdom? It's not a trick question. <laughs> it's divine wisdom. Now, it's divine foolishness. That comes up under James' term. What is wisdom and what is foolishness in these letters? If you're on to that, if you can probe that, you're on the way to understanding precisely the way he tries to address the question that Sarah is raising for us. So what is wisdom? Or what are the ways Paul talks about wisdom in this chapter? Well, he's talking in a Greek culture where, where the philosophy was a big thing. And so he's trying to figure out how to understand What does philosophy mean, remind us? So talking about philosophy. Oh, you mean talk about translated? Yes. Trans love Anybody translated philosophy? philosophy? Love of wisdom. Sophia is the word wisdom in Greek, or one of them. 
and it's the one that you're you're talking about. So philosophers love wisdom. Now in Paul's time, it's not Aristotle, Plato primarily, but it it is moralist philosophers who were telling people how to live. Like, That's the real like end. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carol. Yes. Yes. And what does he call Christ? Um, what is that? What is the message of Christ? Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Yeah, but what do the Greeks think about it? What do the Greeks think about it? There's the word. <laughs> Foolishness. That's James' word, foolishness. So when you talk about, in, the, in these letters, in Paul's very rhetorical and very loaded way of thinking, there is a wisdom in the world that is based on philosophy, it's based on this world. And so that's the wisdom he says you're thinking about. I'm also thinking about wisdom, but you call it foolishness. So I'll just call it the foolishness of preaching. And what is the essence of the foolishness of preaching for Paul? What? The cross. Crucifixion. That's the foolishness. But it was foolishness. It was foolishness. And it was a shame. And ridiculous if you will just because the Jews So here is where again Paul's irony. Irony. Because he not only says it's foolishness, whatever what does he also say? The foolishness of God is wiser than human. It's wiser. So now he's throwing out um Eric's. Really slow. Eric's talking about two kinds of wisdom. There are at least two kinds of wisdom in here. So that the wisdom of God is foolishness, but the foolishness of God is true wisdom. All right? So you flip the language. You always have to watch for the flipping of language in Paul. Because he can use the same term once in the language of his opponents and once in his own language. So foolishness is wisdom. God's foolishness, the cross, is wisdom if you understand it as What's the other term Paul would use about God's wisdom or foolishness? Pardon? It will be a stumbling block to Greeks or to Jews who are looking for signs. So it can be a stumbling block because if you don't see the true wisdom in the foolishness, then you will stumble over it. So weakness is that other term, not only foolishness, but weak. And there again, weak and strong will be a 
term, a pair of terms that will show up repeatedly in this letter. And weak and strong may be the way Paul conceives of the divisions in the church. In that it's not, sorry, three, yeah. He gets downright nasty. And he says, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, yeah. as infants in Christ. Yeah. And then, uh, for as long as there is jealousy and quarrel among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? And then he closes that little attack by saying, when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? Hey, shame on all you people, being merely human. <laughs> <laughs> There again will be two pair, uh, a pair of terms, flesh and spirit. Right. All right. Paul frequently will use those binaries, and you have to study his use of the binaries in a particular moment. Some people would argue Paul had no um, good things to say about the flesh at all. That's true in an argument like this because it's a rhetorical argument against people who are using his false idea of wisdom, the wisdom of the world. They're the ones who are carnal, to use a Latinate phrase, um, with carne is, uh, is the Latin word for flesh, sarcos is, uh, or sarks is the Greek word. So he's comparing being fleshly with being weak, with being pseudo-wise, with being of this world in a way that you see it as something to boast about, so that you trot out your degrees and saying, because I've got X degrees, I am wise. And the other word I was looking for a moment ago was powerful, yeah. All right? So Paul flips the power dynamic as well, so that the weak become the powerful, all right? Because they have the power of God, through tying in with the Spirit, which is tied in with the death of Jesus, because the death of Jesus also involves... A, weak, a poor person, a nothing. Yeah. He was a carpenter, a wandering car, and he was, you know, yeah. down the Yeah. And, but he is raised to... There's the word from Paul's perspective here. You never talk about the cross without the resurrection. Because that is the flipping of the power because death supposedly would be the ultimate power. And when Paul wants to talk about what God's really about, or what faith in God is about, it's faith in the one who brings life from the dead. And he's already signaling this here in 1 Corinthians. Now, let me back up, and I want to say why I've taken the time to pull out these threads, because it's absolutely crucial, pun intended, why is that a pun to talk about something being crucial? Resurrection. It's the crux of it. It's the cross of it. Okay. So it is absolutely crucial to get this this point in Paul that the death seemingly would be weakness, but in Paul's gospel, the death, the cross, the crucifixion is tied up with God's power in raising the dead which for Paul becomes the fundamental way of talking about God's primary business is to bring life. 
Okay? That's what God is about. God brings life. It's the first thing that's said about God in Genesis. In the beginning, God created, and that's created the whole universe, including breathing life into the humans. All right? So that's what God is about. And that's where Paul will fundamentally come. We can talk about that a little bit later. But it's important to get some sense of it here. That when he's comparing the foolishness of Greek wisdom and the wisdom of the proclamation of Jesus' death, blame those two up, he's saying what the fundamental characteristic should be of this community. You are a community because you are the body of Christ. That body that was crucified and raised. So your primary definition of members of this community, to pick up on Sarah's phrase of being in Christ, one of the primary ways Paul will find to work on that is in becoming a part of this community, you're becoming a part of a community that was dead and is now alive. So whatever else you think about it, and there'll be a lot of other things that we'll keep exploring, but at its core, the bottom line for this is you're a community of a crucified God. <coughs> Whatever else you want, however else you want to talk about yourself, that's the fundamental. The world will think it's foolish. The world will think it's weak. But from Paul's standpoint, that's the source of the power because that crucified person was raised and exalted. And then when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will shoot off fireworks and do all sorts of stuff with this to bring it to that final statement in 1 Corinthians 15 that on the, at the very last, God will be all and in all. That's the culmination of where 1 Corinthians will go. Right? Now, when we go back and take this in the context of 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is dealing with divisions in the church. Let's put a little more flesh on, the, uh, on that structure by looking at the Spirit, right? another of those pairs. And one of the things that's going to be going on here let me read the opening. The opening sentences of Paul's letters are usually very telling because this is the way in antiquity you wrote a letter. The opening will signal what the letter's about. It will have a tone. It will have certain vocabulary. Yeah, do we need to lower yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. All right, thank you, Barb. Um, um, so the... Um, there were certain kind of letters. You had letters of introduction. You had letters of consolation. You had letters of, of um, recommendation. There were all sorts of different letters. And anybody in Paul's, at Paul's level of education would know how to write letters for, for each particular situation. And in one of them, um, this kind of exhortation letter, you would signal in advance what you're going to be talking about. So here's the opening. All right. To the church of God, this is Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. 
be interesting to know how much Sosthenes had to do with this letter, but we don't know. <clears throat> to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ, sanctified. Uh, how many times have you used the word sanctified today? <laughs> what about in the last week? <laughs> the last month? My translation has dedicated. Dedicated, a little weak, but uh, sort of there. Anybody got any notion of what sanctified would be about? Sanctified? Made holy. Made holy. Right, exactly. It's the word holy. Like sanctus, we sing the sanctus, holy, holy, holy. That's the, the word behind it. So that to the church of God that is in Christ Jesus, to those who are sanctified, one of the ways, one of the many metaphors Paul used, and Christ called to be saints, saints sanctified, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now we enter the thanksgiving part of the letter. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way, listen carefully to this, in every way you have been enriched in him. Now, you're hearing Paul address you with those words. <laughs> All right. Enriched in him. In speech and knowledge of every kind. <laughs> Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you. So that you are not lacking. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Are there any spiritual gifts out there? You guys got them. Right? Is he fine for a job? <laughs> well, in some ways he was. But now we get to it. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By Him you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you but you being united in the same mind, in the same purpose. Wait a minute. What did he just said about them? They have all the gifts. They got all the gifts? Now, those opening lines then were a setup. <laughs> they were clearly a setup, and they were intended as a setup. And Paul knew they were being set up. And I suspect the Corinthians, by the time they got to the second paragraph, were saying, Wait a minute. Something's wrong here. Simply by the form of the letter. Right? Uh, just to drive this point home one little bit in terms of reading, and you have to be pay attention to what it is. The letter to the Galatians is the one exception to Paul's letters beginning with a thanksgiving like this. Because in Galatians, Paul goes from that introductory paragraph to say, I am astounded that you've so quickly turned around from the stuff that I preached to you. There is no thanksgiving. And not hearing a thanksgiving in a letter like this, they would have immediately known they were in big trouble. 
at least pulsing. And that's it, but that's another level. My point here is, Paul in this opening is going to talk about you having all the spiritual gifts. Next week we're going to look more at those spiritual gifts because it's a theme that will come up throughout this. But one of the things he does at the very beginning is say, you think you are wise. This is what comes up in the opening of this when he goes on his first time to talk about it. You claim to have wisdom. But if you had wisdom, there wouldn't be those divisions among you. Because if you really had wisdom, you would understand that the wisdom of God is not about you individually being exalted and being able to boast of whatever your gifts are. Because the boasting is an element of pride and it's a pointing to yourself. What this community has to be about is to recognizing that it is part of the body of Christ that was crucified and why was Jesus crucified in part because of that grand vision that we can talk about at some other time of redeeming and all the other. But for the most part, in this particular instance, it's going to be a way of putting another person as more important than yourself. And that's going to come up again and again and again in this letter. Okay? So then, as Gunnar pointed out a moment ago, one of the ways that Paul has of talking about this community is that the very fact you have divisions means you're still babies. You're still immature. You do not have the wisdom that allows to see who you really are and what your relationship should truly be. Sarah. Put your glasses no, on. Just, Something was coming. <laughs> I was just remembering there's a, there's, a, um, there's a line where he says, actually, it's it's okay to have factions. It's um, 1119 yep. where he says, yeah, it's okay, but is that where you can tell what's true? Um, yeah. Indeed, there have to be factions among you. For only some will it become clear who among you are genuine. In other words, some of them are going to be wrong, so you're going to have some divisions. So that's a, a curious point. It is. You've studied it. What's your answer for that? Larry does this I've got mine, but what do you Yeah, no, I'd like to hear yours. <laughs> she was clever. Remember one of the one of the characteristic terms in this opening that we've seen is weak and strong. That will be one of the ways, in addition to wise and foolish, that Paul would use to make a distinction within the community because he does want to distinguish. As we keep going through this letter, we're going to see that Paul primarily addresses the letter to the strong about the weak. But he's going to side with the weak. Okay? Now, when we get... Sorry, let me, let me come up with a way that's going to make this clear. 
when he talks here about everybody being wise, we clearly saw that he means it in an ironic way. But there are a group of Christians in the church in Corinth who regard themselves as wise. They're probably primarily the people who were attentive to Apollos because Apollos, coming from Alexandria, had a certain worldly wisdom about him, right? Probably in a good way. And, and remember in chapter 16, Paul has good things to say about Apollos. Apollos is not going to go, but at least they're in communication with one another. But Apollos would represent a kind of sophistication that some people in Corinth really liked. People who were better educated, who were among the wealthier of them, and by better educated, they would have known some Greek philosophy. And there are many terms and phrases used throughout this letter that fall into those categories. So there's certain people in the Corinthian church who are wealthy, who are sophisticated, who are smart, who know their way around, who know the world. All right? Everybody with me so far? That's one group. Another group for the week from the standpoint of those wise people who consider themselves strong. Again and again and again then in this letter, Paul is going to set out to make clear those distinctions. Not to celebrate them though, but in order to identify who the real target is and what the target needs to do in order to heal this division. In this particular part of the letter, I would argue, Sarah, that he's addressing those people who think of themselves as wise in philosophical terms, and so they use the term wisdom, and they will use the term power. They will use all the sophisticated language about it, but they would then be in opposition to those people who might think of themselves as weak or who they certainly thought of as weak. We will see this much more clearly in another situation next week, and I'll give you this when we go, because one of the issues that will also come up in this will have to do, it's another theological issue that come, that's worked out in everyday life. And I'll simply give you a taste of it for going on next week. The community was also divided over whether or not you could eat meat that was bought in the marketplace. All right? Now the reason that becomes an issue is because almost all the meat in the marketplace came from animals that were sacrificed in a ritual service. All right? So that when you went to most of the sacrifices in Corinth or in any city, the animal would be slaughtered, certain parts of the animal most of the time, stuff that nobody would want to eat would be burned on the fire as the sacrifice. And the fillets, and chops, and whatever else the good stuff is, would then be sold on the marketplace. Now, if the meat you buy in the marketplace came from a cow that was sacrificed in a ritual to Diana of the Ephesians, or to Zeus, or to whatever god it may have been, and you eat that meat, are you participated in the sacrifice? 
Are you eating the meat of a sacrificial animal? And does that somehow taint you? Okay. That will become a real issue if you're weak and you don't know that those gods don't really exist. Now Paul is dealing with a community which has socially very diverse. And some people are less educated than the others. Some will say, oh, ooh, wow, if I do that, I'm taking part in devil worship. And so they won't eat it. But then they say one of the wealthy, wise people who are accustomed to eat meat more because they got the money to pay for it. Most people would not eat meat more than once or twice a month. Just, it was too expensive. So the wealthy who could eat that. And then if here in the community, in the, in the church, when they get together and they see those people eating their meat and we don't have any, You see the distinction that is being developed? The weak and strong works itself out in very practical, everyday terms that would be obvious to everybody. Not to us, but to everybody else in Carp. So again, we come back here in this part. Paul knows this is coming in the letter, so he builds it up step by step by step by step by step. Here he will talk about those gifts. He will talk about wisdom and foolishness. He will talk about the wise and the foolish as a way of beginning his argument that will build up all the way through this letter. And in almost every instance, his primary target are those wealthy people who are wise, who can eat the meat and say they're better than everybody else, and will say, we have spiritual gifts. We will see this a bit later too. We can speak in tongues, for example. <laughs> I can speak in tongues. <laughs> that is the, that is the, I'm being silly, I know, but that, that is the, the stuff on the ground in Corinth that Paul sees. So when he says, Chloe's people are saying they're divisions, and I hardly believe it because this, this, this. The rest of the letter will unfold those divisions, not simply in terms of Paul and Peter or Paul and Apollos or Christ and whatever. He's going to unpack it and say it's not simply about the names you call yourselves, but it's the characteristics you attribute to yourself and what the characteristics you attribute to yourself is going to do to this community of people that are gathering together as the crucified people. One thing I noticed is uh, he invented it. It's sort of um, the don't ask, don't tell thing. Because when he's talking about that meat, he said, well, don't ask them where it came from, and then you can eat it. But <laughs> if they tell you it came from an idol, then you can't eat it. Um, so I think he's the originator of the don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> well, I mean, to be blunt, I don't think Paul originated much of anything. But the argument is there. I can see at that, at that point, Jane, that's the end of two chapters of argument where he's, he's, he's coming at this from several yeah. different perspectives. One of the things to watch for in this letter, and it begins as early as chapter 7, about the marriage stuff, when it says, um, um, Now concerning the things about which you have written, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. 
That's about sinners, okay? And that's not a Me Too movement. <laughs> if you notice in some translations, the ones that the NRSV will have it, I don't know what yours are. Look at it in chapter one, seven, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 in your Bible. If you've got a Bible, look at it and see if it's got quotation marks around it is good for a man not to touch a woman. No. no. It doesn't. Yours doesn't have. What no. translation have you got, Julia? It's the New Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It doesn't have quotation marks around it. Just no. I would say it should have. No. No. NRSV has quotation yeah. marks. That's a that's a modern editorial process because in Greek there were no quotation marks. Words were not divided. All right. Here's what I think is going on, and this is the first instance. of Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So he's referring to a letter that the Corinthians have written to him to ask him some questions. Okay? One of the questions was, well, if we're supposed to be like angels, and we're supposed to be completely dedicated to God, and we're supposed to be spiritual and not fleshly, can we have sex? That's the question that they're raising. And Paul says, quotes that letter and says, what's the next word in your translation? In verse 2. What is the, what is the first word? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But. Let a man have his own wife. But. Since sex is always a danger. Exactly. This is where the argument is going to go consistently. And it's important to see this because he's simply going to do it. It is good for this, but the first part is almost always a quotation from the letter. And the letter is written from the perspective of the elites and the community. Paul will almost always start his response. I agree with you, you're right. But. So always watch for the but. <laughs> You're going to get it in what I'm about to hand out for next week, which has to do with that eating meat sacrifice to idols. And it will come back to the language that we're using right here now. We know, but. We know, but. So he's going to play off on that notion of wisdom, of the theological elements, but he's always going to take them back to it. I agree with you that there are no other gods. And so that you can eat anything you want. Or I have a right to be paid for what I do. You have all sorts of rights to eat anything because everything God created is good. But if you're doing it, it's going to harm a weaker brother or sister. Forgo your right for the good of the community. Paul is not a libertarian well, we in any shape, love. form, or fashion. And, and love is it will certainly come out in 1 Corinthians 13, right in the middle of the context about gifts of the Spirit. Right. Yeah. That 12 to 14 is the discussion about those spiritual gifts. And Paul will say, yeah, some of you guys can speak in tongues. Oh, by the way, I can speak in tongues better than all of you. <laughs> so if you want to play that game, I'll play that game, and I'll outdo you. But that's only one of those things that, that helps the, the inner group. 
That's when if somebody comes in from outside and has never heard speaking in tongues or that ecstatic sort of mystical sort of stuff, they're going to think you're a bunch of idiots. I would rather speak a word rationally than a million words in tongues if it's not going to do anybody any good. All right? So that's where we're going with this whole thing in card. The divisions of the groups is only one little part. And he's going to come back to unpack for them the ways in which they're destroying the body of Christ. And the spiritual gifts will be one and reading the story of the Eucharist because some of you come to the Eucharist you're getting drunk because you've got good wine and there are other people at the lower ends of the table who don't even have enough to eat and you think you're wise and you think you're being good Christians and you think you're celebrating the Lord's Supper you've destroyed the body of Christ by the way you're treating one so I think, Jane, that argument, it, it, it's there so that Paul can say, yeah, eat anything you want. But if anything comes up that is going to destroy what you're trying to be as a community, think twice about it. I'm sorry, I'm over. Um, I do want to pass... Let's hear some of Here. So I'll pass these around. This has um, this has uh, one Corinthians eight and nine on it on the, on the two sides. You actually have to do flip this way to get it. Um, but I've, I've put some of the stuff that I want you to think about in bold print. This is one of the other situations Paul is going to deal with here, and I'll, I've done it in bold print so you can watch the argumentative part of what he's setting up and talking about. And we'll we'll press some of this further. Oh, sorry. I covered up the Okay. Good. Was this we're still together? On that? Yes, very much so. Thank you. Uh, I'll hang around another minute if there are any side questions. Um, and I speak to both the wise and the foolish. <laughs> Thank you.